0: Hi, welcome to Spirit Matters at spiritmatterstalk.com. I'm Phil Goldberg. If you're a regular viewer or listener, you uh, expect Dennis Ramundi to say, uh, to greet you and to introduce our guest, but Dennis had an emergency and could not be with us today. So I have the pleasure of speaking alone to, our, to today's guest, who is a return visitor, Annika Lucas. And um, I would refer you to our first interview with Annika a few years ago, uh, but here we are on the occasion of the publication of her book, Quest for Love, And uh, I will tell you that Annika is uh, an author, a speaker, an advocate for child sex trafficking victims and the founder of the nonprofit organization, Liberation Prison Yoga and creator of the Unconditional Model. We'll talk about all of those Uh, and her new memoir, Quest for Love, Memoir of a Child Sex Slave. It's just been released and available and wherever books are sold. Anika, welcome back to Spirit Matters.
1: Hi, Phil. It's nice to see you again.
0: So I know that um, this book was uh, cooking for a long time. Yes, And I know it was a somewhat difficult decision whether to do it or not. So tell us what the book is and why you've written it and why now?
1: Thank you. Yes, I think that's exactly the right question. So I wrote the book in 2004 And through the writing of the book, I actually had more memories that came out of my finger, so to speak. Um, Things were written down. I did go to Belgium, uh, where um, most of what is described in the book happened in Belgium. Although I do go back to some of the more international um, uh, trafficking I was exposed to as a child sex slave.
0: You were born and raised in Belgium, we should have.
1: Born and raised in Belgium, and this was um, mostly I was used by the Belgian network which was a network of uh, pedophiles that were um, mostly politicians and high-ranking aristocrats or um, royalty they were involved and um, children were used as a commodity and traded and um I had already been in the network for four years when Mm -hmm. I came across a man who was very young, was 20 years old. So he was an adult, but a young adult. And um, who took an interest in me. And that started a a year long relationship of beginning with protection and um, some healing that happened he asked me about things that had already happened so I I spoke about um, things and felt safe speaking about them even though you know he was not exactly a safe person and then he uh, made sure no one else touched me he didn't touch me himself so that was amazing to have this kind of reprieve in that setting but then once that sex started, I was um, just 11 and he was uh, 21. It quickly devolved and it became a very crazy, um, violent relationship that would have ended in my death had I not um, had a near death experience. And that, so the, the climax of the book is really, about this near death, the circumstances leading to that near death experience. And then that near death experience in which I reveal that on the other side, I was greeted by Paramahansa Yogananda who's my guru and who of course you know very much about. Not only Yogananda, there were other beings there on the other side, but it was a glorious experience and the book is called Quest for Love because it was that tiny little bit of hope that I had kept alive, um, that I could be loved. It was not my mother, it was not my father. It was not the people in the network. It, was, it looked like it was not the gangster either, although I hoped that he would be one. And then ev- eventually this experience showed me what love really is. And I experienced that great love, that divine love in this miraculous way. That bliss that I experienced during that near-death experience, then gave me the experience of what to strive for in my healing because I had known sexual ecstasy. I was a child, but I was programmed. So my whole body psychology, my whole being had to be applied to the task. So if a perpetrator wanted me to feel pleasure, I felt pleasure. If a perpetrator wanted me to feel pain, I felt pain.
0: Hmm.
1: So I did what was expected of me. And it is impossible as a child to separate yourself from your experiences. So experiencing sexual ecstasy, well, then I think that that is me or being abandoned in the experience, Even I was trained particularly to be completely abandoned animalistically. So that was, I thought that was me. And the experience of love that I had while I was clinically dead showed me the, the, the true bliss that we're all seeking, that is not that dissimilar, strangely perhaps, from either drug-induced states or um, sexual ecstasy. It's not dissimilar, but it, it, it is more subtle. And of course, it is a lot harder to come by.
0: And all these years later, you, uh, you said you wrote the book in 2004. So yes. that's 18 years ago. Yeah. So at a, at a certain point you decided, despite the possibility uh, that going public might be dangerous because you were writing uh, about uh, identifiable people in, who are perpetrators. Um, Despite that, you chose to write the book. So why why the 18-year gap?
1: So when I wrote it in 2004, I showed it to some agents. They said, it's too heavy. It's too hard. And I, you know, the book hasn't changed, although, of course, I have edited it to reflect my understanding, I've brought in some of the backstory that wasn't there before, that brings a little bit more distance from the narrator to the, to, to the child that is going through the experience, which was necessary. We do not want to get the impression that maybe I'm condoning any uh, kind of pedophilia. It was rather that I, that you the, the child is completely engaged in the experience. So um, bringing in the backstory gives you the explanation of why she is engaged. But it was rather that the world has changed. In 2004, I wasn't really public yet. I did show my book to some people. I had privately told some people. Of course, I was in therapy. I'd been in therapy for quite a while. But it's been such a long and hard um, journey to come to feeling confident to speak about this at all, knowing the, well, there's the fear from the indoctrination, from the threats when I was in the network, from the horrors that I witnessed. To better be silent, it's really always about that, to never. reveal the secrets. And then the Dutroux case in Belgium was supposed to, I guess, reveal that case, particularly that Belgian network. So that didn't happen. Um, 1996 was the the, the year that uh, Marc Dutroux was captured and four bodies of children were found.
0: And he was, uh, who was he?
1: he? He He said that he was protected by people higher up and that he was working by order of VIPs. He later retracted that statement. And eight years later, that case, which was huge in Belgium and Europe, when that case went to trial in 2004, several survivors had come forward which had led to reopening of uh, child unsolved child murders. Everything was cut off from the case. Witnesses were killed who were planning to come forward. Um, there's a book about that. There's about 30, 30 people supposedly that were killed. And um, Marc Dutroux was pegged as the with three other defendants as the alone perpetrator rather than there was an organized network behind him.
0: So times change, people are more aware of the trafficking uh, catastrophe in the world. Um, yeah. And so you you were able to publish it now because there were more receptivity to the subject matter and less less um, concern that people couldn't handle, couldn't handle
1: it. Yeah, <laughs> couldn't handle this. It's still rough. And of course, there's a new controversy um, since there's sex trafficking, which we can talk about, but elite um, ritual abuse, that has been pushed over into the realm of the crazy conspiracy theories and very convenient, of course. But to speak as a survivor, um, I hope that, you know, it is my healing has gotten me to a place where I can speak about it because I not only speak about the facts But I do hold the hand, let's say of the reader, in that I really also understand, because the healing is spiritual in that sense, in that it creates integration and then deeper understanding of the self. And then with deeper understanding of the self, there is an increase in empathy and love. And so we, we grow closer towards truth as we get to know ourselves better in that way
0: let's talk about that Annika this being a spiritual uh, program um, and and one of the things I always found appealing about your story is that it's it's the epitome of, of a healing story I mean you you the traumas that you uh, speak about are well unspeakable and uh, I I'm sure most people who undergo trauma of that magnitude um, carry that with them their whole lives. And they don't always have the the good karmic fortune to find their way into profound spiritual teachings and have the kind of healing you did and the opportunity to help other people who, who have been through it. So um, I'm sure you count yourself fortunate and grateful that you are in that position. How did it happen? How did you come out of that, find your way to a spiritual path, to the teaching of yoga, to incarcerated people, to uh, having the strength and uh, wisdom to help other victims of trafficking? To what do you attribute that, other than grace? Or, you know, it's good, all grace,
1: really. Then we can, you know, end that conversation right there. It's all grace. It's all spiritual. <laughs> it's I've received what I wanted to learn, or what I what I was meant to learn. Not easy, uh, and certainly there is no bypass in the spiritual on the spiritual path either. But it is all spiritual, and I am extremely fortunate, of course. Extremely fortunate that even as a child, going through these experiences, I felt this benign presence and received comfort. I spontaneously meditated as a child, Mm. and I saw light. And that light was greatly comforting. And I also received messages from that light.
0: So While you were going through these experiences.
1: Yeah. Sometimes through the worst of it, I received great spiritual help. And then other situations, I did not feel any spiritual help. And I later came to see that this was because I needed to go through all of the feelings of that experience. I needed to go through all of the pain, feel the pain and the grief. From that experience to deeply, more deeply understand it. But the grace was there as a child. And then, of course, I'm, ra- I'm pretty certain that the near death experience, which, you know, I don't know why we call it near death, it's like a full life experience, that experience really profoundly altered my life and made me prone. To spirituality. And so it was really just a matter of recognizing Yogananda's face. Which How did I that didn't come know.
0: about? I mean, when you had that vision, you didn't know who he was. Um, what happened? I
1: did. I didn't know a name. I didn't uh, even know a gender, but I knew him to be my teacher of all, of always. I knew him to be my guru even though I had no words for it.
0: And I had never he heard was... of him, the person.
1: Mm-mm, no, and I n- didn't for, for, effort, for a long time after, it was not until 1994, I believe.
0: That you saw him on, where, how, did you, where, how did that come about?
1: I saw a, um, a poster ah. with his uh, image, which is the cover of the autobiography of a Yogi at the Bodhi Tree bookstore in Los Angeles.
0: You're not the only one who found that book at that bookstore, but it, but it resonated in a different way, obviously.
1: Well, I recognized the face. And then my husband at the time and I, we read, uh, we read the autobiography. And then we both realized that we were living five minutes from the Hollywood temple. So we started meditating. But I'd already been in therapy for many years then. And I should say that when I was a young adult, I was not quite atheistic, but I was agnostic. You know, I, it's a mindset. You can't believe there's anything besides your ego because the ego is so wounded that it's too, everything is much too dulled to imagine there's anything outside of it. It's a, I think it's a, a reflection. Atheism is a reflection of an emotional, an inner emotional state that is rather dark and and of course quite limited. And as I went to therapy, I went to therapy, at, I, I had an experience of truth when I was confronted with my father's abuse, which was immediately very painful to get that perspective changed. And um, I went through a lot of grief. I felt myself becoming more stupid even as I was connecting to my victimization Hmm. um, because I had relied very strongly on my left brain, I guess, on my intelligence, on being smart, well-read and so forth. So when I delved into those feelings and felt, went through that stage of recognizing that I had been a victim, which was sort of the first stage of healing, you know, before you recognize that you were a victim, you're never a victim. You're just blindly repeating. And then you go into these dissociated, dissociated states from where you feel victim and you end up harming others. But you don't even realize that it is connected to your own uh, victimization. So when I was a child, um, I didn't really... F- feel that I was a victim and I met my father, I was 18. I didn't feel that I was a victim. So when I suddenly got this perspective that I was victimized, it was shocking um, and I felt it. And I, I um, and then, and then strangely I didn't have that same need to be so smart. And I felt it was as if I was, my, my vibration was changing and I immediately lost some friends that were, you know, in that same kind of, like, left brain state. And, um, you know, that's the path, you know, you go and you vibrate. And
0: And then whatever
1: level you vibrate, that's who you'll uh, attract.
0: And when you uh, found yourself consciously on a spiritual path and participating in uh, satsangs and gatherings and... Practicing learning methods of meditation and yoga. Um, Did you, at what point did the notion of serving people who have been victims of trauma occur? And how did that translate to the liberation prison yoga? Well, it
1: happened completely automatically. I wasn't planning on serving at all but i also didn't plan to have a life dedicated to healing i just wanted to heal and then start my life you know and i spent 30 years um healing trying to start my life and then you know had to come to i guess an acceptance that this was my life that i was going to be healing my entire life and that that is the path that's a lot to come to that you know because there's. It's so hard. (laughs) I still have memories. I still have um, bouts where, um, you know, it's, it's difficult to function when you're going through, when you're connecting with these horrible things that happened. But when I accepted that, that this is my life, and I stopped thinking so much about what I want to do in the future. Um, automatically, it came to me. It was again, you know, I've been held by the hand by the universe, you can say, or by spirit, or by my guru, I say, and led there. I didn't plan it, I, I didn't even really want to teach yoga. I didn't think, and I I still, I don't think I'm the best yoga teacher. I think there's people who can come up with uh, Hatha yoga um, teaching. That's much more interesting than the way I do it, but I'm interested in structures and I'm interested in power and I'm interested, and I was interested in breaking down the power structure between the teacher and the student. And so when I teach, it might physically, for someone who's physical, might not be very interesting. But I think it's very beneficial for someone who has a trauma or for anyone really, it's very pleasant not to be told what to do. It's very pleasant to feel safe emotionally, to feel that you can do what, what, what you want. And <laughs> what, what feels right for your body, <laughs> to be told that you're the expert of your own body,
0: and that's your orientation when you when you when you teach. very much.
1: And I practice myself. You know, I don't. There is no differentiation from the students, but they might need to take a peek. That you know, if they want to follow, see what's going on, they might take take a look. But um, everything. So my my speaking is in a way for me more important than what happens physically. So in speaking, I will always speak to the part that might feel easily that they're doing it wrong Mm. or the part that may feel that, you know, I have to listen to the teacher. I want to encourage people to feel that this is their time and that this is the time they get to think whatever they like. If they don't have to like me, they don't have to do what I say. And then, of course, I actually personally love to share meditations because that's what I gravitate towards. Um, So I love to bring people in this state where we all experience this inner stillness. There can be extremely loud noise around us, right around us, so to the point that I have to yell for them to hear me. And yet you feel that everyone experiences that stillness and to bring that to people who might, might've never felt that inside, inside while they're incarcerated. That is obviously a beautiful thing to be able to share. Although I should tell you that we, we are closed
0: because We're, of COVID.
1: Yes. And we have closed. I have closed. I, I, I never meant to do prison yoga forever. It was a plan to do it for five years or so, I think. Um, when COVID started, we were uh, brusquely, you know, kicked out of the, the jails and prisons, unfortunately. And then we offered online classes for two years. And now we are closed. Um, but, but I do work now full time with survivors of sex trafficking
0: Where do you do that?
1: I do it right here at home. I have sessions with people, uh, private sessions with people online. Private sessions. Yes. And my guess I... is that the book will um, you know, that the book will revive, you know, I haven't sought to be public at all because in in 2020 is really when my kind of abuse was linked to QAnon, and there was a very big movement that ridiculed and mocked my kind of abuse. And I uh, lay low. I didn't want to step on anyone's toes. These were people that I know were sending me emails not to believe this kind of stuff.
0: You uh-huh. know. I was going to ask about that. I didn't think of it in the larger uh, sense but I, I, I imagined that um, when you spoke about it, your experience and have been interviewed and so forth, that you might get people saying, oh, poor Annika, she, she just was um, uh, probably had a difficult childhood and she imagined these things. <laughs> They you know that I wish, or,
1: I wish I imagined them, right? Yes,
0: no, I know, but how do you react to that when because uh, I'm sure it comes up?:
1: Well, everyone responds from their own level of awareness, so you know, in of himself, I, I don't have a problem with anybody saying anything. I, I waited so long to come out because I know that this is controversial because I, the truth is that if you accept what has happened to me you may, your whole worldview may be impacted and you may start thinking of things that you never thought before. And you may feel threatened, you know, that that the, the leaders that we, we voted for and that we invested our, our energy in are actually uh, doing this. If you accept that, it's, it, it's challenging. And I really understand that. Um, so people who, you know, attack me and everything uh, are those who have not yet done any inner work, usually. Anyone who has been in therapy and who's done trauma work understand, knows that I'm speaking the truth because I understand so much about trauma and how it works and, and all the ins and outs of trauma. My, my, blog, my blog is popular because of that. I get a lot of emails from people who said they've ne- never felt understood until they read my blog. Uh,
0: is that what you hope people will get from the book?
1: I hope people will get more from the book. Because no. the book lays out the, it doesn't lay out the solution, but it lays out the issue in what I hope is, I've, I've been able to communicate how that actually comes about. Hopefully, on a psychological uh, level, on a spiritual level, you know, it's it's about Satan and and you know, it's about fighting delusion.
0: Mm. What is the unconditional model?
1: So thank you for asking that. Um, This book is not the unconditional model, but the next one will be. So the unconditional model is basically my solution. For this problem. So, the problem, let's say, is that the people we that are at the top of the hierarchy of the in this in, in, in the Western world that many of them are engaged in extremely dark practices that, that come about as part of the addiction to power. And that many of them are psychopaths who are unconsciously, because of their entitlement, who are unconsciously repeating their, whatever their trauma story is from the spot of the perpetrator, perpetrating onto the entire society with greed, extreme selfishness, and ruthlessness, and psychopathy. Psychopathy, that's to say to the point that there is no connection to the self at all. No ability to go within, to know the self, no connection to their innocence, to the, the, the light that shines through us, no connection to it. I don't know if you've ever met someone like that, but, it, but, but it's something, you know, when you meet someone who has no connection to their inner light.
0: Hmm. Can you recognize such people when you see them on... They're very
1: hard to recognize because they're really good at acting, that they're actually not only as good as you are, but that they're even better.
0: Mm.
1: They're really good at their spiel. So it is hard. It's hard to recognize. It's hard to recognize.
0: Have you had uh, blowback from the book or or prior to that, your public uh, statements?
1: Well, at this time, the book isn't out yet. So I'm about to put it out. Um, I keep getting hit with things I need to get go through. Sometimes it's a memory, sometimes it's a physical condition to learn something. And then it may like mean one sentence is changed in the book, but it feels important. And there's, there's, there's a lot of logistics, in fact, that are keeping me, but that means I keep going back to it. And it should be close to being formatted before being printed before, I, and I self publish so there's no time lost there. And uh, that I'm not afraid anymore. Um, it's rather that it, there's, it seems to have its own timing, that's for sure. And it's certainly teaching me a lot of patience.
0: <laughs> what do you hope uh, victims of trauma will get from the book?
1: Yeah, so you asked me about the unconditional model. So yeah. I hope that victims of trauma recognize something in the book that they can find maybe sometimes trauma is isolating. Hmm. And I hope that I can reach those isolated parts and the book is sort of explaining how this can come about and hopefully make it real and then it leaves everyone with this enormous conundrum that if this is true if this is what our leaders are up to how can i you know people tend to then feel helpless in the face of it and that is often a reason why I get attacked because someone, uh, males more often than females, will feel really helpless because they want to do something, and if they can't do something, they can't go, you know, protest or they can't go um, kill those people or, you know, um, the unconditional model is helping people to do something because ultimately each person has to reach a level of awareness where we would be able to notice, for example, that someone is a psychopath. It's important, the unconditional model uses power dynamics. We all have them, we we are uh, raised in a family and our parents are more powerful than us. And few of us have these kinds of parents who are so sweet. (laughs) that there's not any power abuse happening and and, and of course the hierarchic structure encourages um, parental abuse in the sense that it encourages parents, you know, the old school method and so forth and all these things that are not so helpful for um, children or, or it can encourage being too um, open that that children are also not safe in that way. Uh, but there's very little, in the public that is bringing us to understanding of trauma and personal trauma especially so i use power dynamics that is to say who we give our power to who we look up to who we put on a pedestal and whom we look down upon who we think of lesser than as less than ourselves hmm. as an entry into our own unresolved either trauma or unmet emotional needs, somewhere where we have gotten a little bit stuck emotionally and we haven't been able to grow up emotionally, which is, of course, very different. You can function in the world with being an emotional two-year-old and you can function really well in the world. Or someone, at least. You can.
0: (laughs) Well, you can certainly be successful, as we've seen.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) So it's... it's. um, Begin it's looking at yourself. So the the model offers a way of looking at yourself through that lens in that we have the external power paradigm, which gives us all these suggestions of power that we should look up to people who have power, for example, who are very rich, for example, that they have something that you don't when perhaps what we need to see is prick through that mantle of power and that, um, you know, the emperor has no clothes but at the same time when we have power what is it that we do with it how do we look down on other people as well we are definitely encouraged by the societal structure to take our privilege and run with it to not see how our privilege in the structure of our western society comes at someone else's expense
0: mm.
1: we're invited to take this privilege and to use it as a cover for our trauma so that we, rather than looking at ourselves and going underneath that cover and seeing what may be, what insecurities might be there, what ways in which I was humiliated as as a young child that I haven't healed from, this privilege helps me to feel better in a way that I never even need to look underneath it. And I can think that those people who are not as successful as I am, even though their circumstances may be very different, that you know it's their problem if they can't be successful. And that that is that is, you know, there's the societal way, but it helps us to go within. And then I have a a range of exercises that you can do. You can you have to be a person who has like a basic sense of self-esteem in order to use it on yourself but it can be used by therapists. I've taught it to therapists. They're very responsive to it because it basically says do away with any agenda when you're present with someone. Like when we work, for example, with, um, with a pedophile, usually there has to be an agenda because we want them to stop harming children. Now, when someone has that problem, we definitely wanna put them away so that they don't have access to children. But if you're working with someone like that, as soon as you have an agenda, that exploited part that is underneath that drive, and again, we're going into this direction of accepting pedophilia as a, as a sexual preference instead of looking at the trauma underneath, that, um, you know, sooner or later, this trauma that lies underneath. What brings someone to become a pedophile, and again, there's a choice to make, you know, to go to actually go and do do uh, do harm to a child, and that once once that is done, there, um, it's just a matter of time before it'll become become uh, called uh, conversion therapy. But it is really important for anyone who is a provider who holds space to have that spiritual love not love i don't want to call it love cuz that that might be misunderstood very easily but to be unconditionally present so if you're present with yourself and your own younger parts that are looking up or looking down you know if you're looking up to someone you can assume that you are actually looking at the face of an authority figure where there's something that's not quite clear yet there might be it might be a hypocritical face and you don't know yet what's behind it it's the it's the or else it's the fear-based love that you give to a parent that gets projected onto authority figures and you want to please them. And that placating is fear-based love. And so you want to look at that and you want to look at what it is, what can be behind that. And when you look down on someone, when you have cannot find any respect for someone as a human being and you, you know, you look, you so look down on them, then, you, you are actually looking at a part of yourself that you've not yet fully embraced. And of course, politics is, is, is the greatest divider between people. I find it very, it's really important. It, it, the, the political division has increased by a lot. And I think it's important for us all to, um, to be able to reach beyond that and to see people as people Again, you know, and and, and the unconditional model helps you to to really take responsibility for yourself.
0: That's, I hope
1: that that explains it somewhat.
0: I think it does. And I thank you for giving us that. Thank you for the book. And I want to wish you well with it. By the time this is online, it will probably already published. So uh, ladies and gentlemen, Uh, You can find it online, Quest for Love, Memoir of a Child Sex Slave. And I can tell you, while that sounds like a salacious topic and a dark topic, um, the book is, as is Annika, suffused with light and healing and um, a vision of, of higher possibilities. So thank you, Annika, for being with us. Good luck with it. And uh, we'll see you next time.
1: Thank you.